Why don't you go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 15 with me. We're, we're actually coming to the end of the practical application section of Romans. There's additional material yet to be covered as we will spend time in the second half of chapter 15 and then chapter 16 over the next few weeks. Um, but he's really kind of coming to the end of the real practical application stuff, if you will. If you remember, he started that a few chapters back um, where he called on us to basically um, not be conformed to the world around us, but instead to be transformed. Dustin and I were just talking briefly um, before the service here, and we're talking about the study through... um, Samuel, and one of the things you find in, in the, the first chapter there of the book of Samuel is both um, Elkanah and Hannah make vows to the Lord, promises to the Lord. And one of the things that we find in the Old Testament is God says, don't make vows, just in case you don't fulfill them. But you see in these two characters, they actually fulfilled those vows. They made their promises, and then they fulfilled them to the Lord. And so I kind of mentioned to Dustin, it's interesting the reflection on how that applies to us in that when we come to Christ... In many respects, it's like a vow because we're committing ourselves to him. And there's an expectation that comes from that. Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians that we're supposed to walk according to our calling. And he lays that out. The calling idea there is in the first few chapters of Ephesians where he talks about this amazing call of God and rescuing us and saving us and all the amazing things God did. And then Paul says, no, there's a response to that. There's an expectation. Fulfill your vow in some respects. Um, And so that's really what Paul is doing in the book of Romans here. He actually tells us that we're not to be conformed to the world, but instead be transformed. And he does that at the end of a long discussion on the gospel, the first eight chapters of Romans, and then 9, 10, and 11, on how that plays out in the salvation of Israel and the salvation of the Gentiles. And then... He says, now because of all of that, because of the amazing goodness of God and his, his divine redemptive plan for us, there's an expectation, and that is that we should not be conformed to the world, meaning be made like them, but instead be transformed into something new. Um, Paul says in the book of um, uh, 2 Corinthians that we are to be, um, become new creations in Christ. And so there's an expectation that that will take place. And as we get to this, this section of Romans here, as, as Paul has been helping us to understand what does that mean to be transformed? What does that mean to um, not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed in our thinking? He covers a number of things. He says, first off, that we're not to be highly thought of in our own minds. We're supposed to look at the body of Christ and accept our role and our function within that body, recognizing that we all play our part. There's no one individual that um, is more important than another, which is a worldly concept, isn't it? Right now, where anybody watch the Olympics here, what's the goal in the Olympics? To be better than everybody else. No, that's not necessarily a bad thing in sports. You should strive for that, but that's the goal, right? To be better than everybody else. Well, sometimes that folds itself into real life, too, where we feel we have to be better than. You know, the whole cyberbullying thing that takes place right now with, with teenagers where they're constantly cutting one another down, demonstrating their one-upsmanship. I'm better than them, or whatever it is. We see that in culture and society. And so there's times where that's not good, and it certainly doesn't have its place in the body of Christ. And so Paul starts off by saying one of the ways to be transformed is to think of your proper place in the body of Christ, that everyone's been given a gift and an ability and has a purpose to serve in the body of Christ. He goes on, he says that we're supposed to learn to love without hypocrisy. He goes on also to say that we're supposed to bless those who mistreat us. The world doesn't say that, right? Somebody mistreats you in the world, and what do you do? You mistreat them twice as bad back, right? You lash out. There's the vengeance, you know. It's, it's frustrating for me to watch some of the, the news when it comes to the tweeting done by our president. 
You know, because, boy, you, you say something not so nice about the president, he'll come back with both barrels loaded, you know? And because that's, that's the way we are. We have a media that's just literally out to get him. You know, the, the, the report that just was released from Mueller where he indicted the 12, 13 Russians on spying, he says right in his report that as far as he could tell so far, there were no Americans willing or willfully knowing that they were involved with the Russians on trying to fix the election and all that. But then you get the other side of the fence. The, the Democrats that come out and aren't satisfied with that, and they're now doubling down and pushing even harder. Why? Because there's... Boy, you know, there's this antagonism towards one another. And Paul says, you know what? When that kind of stuff happens in the church, we're supposed to bless, not persecute. When somebody hurts us or lashes out at us, we're not supposed to respond like the world does. Take out the double-barrel shotgun and issue a tweet. Tear them apart, you know? He says that we're not supposed to owe anything to anybody except love. And he spent some time on that the last couple of weeks. And he also goes on, he says that, how do you handle differences of opinion in matters of conscience? Because within the church, we're not going to always agree, right? And so he told us what it means to have a transformed mind when it comes to dealing with differences of opinion. In the world, when people have differences of opinions, what happens? Man, it's funny watching people argue and debate sometimes, because more often than not, they don't want to debate the issue, they want to do personal attacks. Isn't it interesting how that works out? Somebody has, says something that maybe disagrees with you, and so you pull out and you attack their character or their personhood or who they are instead of dealing with the real issue, debating the nature of what's been said. You know, and so what Paul did in the last couple of weeks for us here is he says that there's a way to properly handle that, and it has to do with things like um, understanding and accepting those differences, understanding that people um, simply want to serve Christ and they're serving Christ and their convictions, and we're to accept those things. Well, today he piggybacks on that, and he kind of wraps up that discussion. We're looking at uh, first, or, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 15. He kind of picks up on the, the concept of the last couple of weeks and how we deal with each other when we have differences of opinions, differences in the way that we live out our Christian faith. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. It says, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength and not just please ourselves. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. Let's just go ahead and read the rest of the passage. For even Christ did not please himself, but it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the earliest or earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant to you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm, confirm the promises given to the fathers, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for the mercy for His mercy. As it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with, with His people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise Him. Again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you all with joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what is Paul going to do here? He's going to kind of wrap up this discussion on how to get along in the body of Christ, 
And he kind of encapsulates all that in the concept of hope. It's kind of interesting how many times he mentions hope in this. But let's go ahead and break this down. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, those who are strong, okay, those who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength. The strong here is just the Greek word for power. It means those who are able or competent. So you might translate this as those who are able or capable. It's the same word that's used in three other passages. In Acts 25, it refers to those who are in positions of leadership or authority. Um, in 1 Corinthians 1.26, it refers to the influential within the church. 2 Corinthians 13, it refers to the same thing, those who are influential or prominent in the church. So who is he referring to here? When Paul refers to the strong here, what he's really referring to are those who are spiritually mature, not just in their theological understanding, but probably in their behavior and in their faith. And we've got to be a little careful here because people don't like being identified as those who are weak or strong. But the reality of it is, within the body of Christ, there are those who are mature, who are strong in their faith, that seem to be stable. In fact, oftentimes as you look at them, we can see maturity and growth. And that's who Paul is referring to here. But also within the church, there are those that aren't always quite as mature as the rest. Maybe they're not quite as mature theologically, meaning they don't have quite the understanding of the scriptures. Maybe it's because they seem to always be struggling in their faith. Maybe they worry quite a bit. But there are also times where even the mature in Christ struggle. You know, you get hit. I can think of the Apostle Paul. Did he ever face um, those times where he just was tired and weak? You know, the indication we get from Paul is that, that he relied upon the encouragement of others. You know, his, his desire to go to, to, go to um, Rome, he tells them, I want to be encouraged by you as well. You know, we, we have to believe that no matter how strong Paul was, no matter how much of a leader he was, that when he's sitting in a pit that they referred to as prison in Rome, it was basically a hole in the ground where the sewage ran, there were probably times where Paul maybe struggled a little bit. Maybe he needed the encouragement of others. We see in another one of his letters where Paul says, everybody's abandoned me. Everybody's abandoned me. I'm by myself. You know, When he writes to Timothy, he says, please bring the cloak. Basically, it's cold here. You know? Um, so even the Apostle Paul probably had those times where he was maybe a little weak, needed to be encouraged. And so what Paul is doing here is he's identifying that there are those who are strong and there are those who maybe are a little weak, maybe they're a little weary at times. And in this, he basically encourages or commands the strong, he says here, to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength. There's a responsibility placed on those who are spiritually mature or strong in their faith. And that responsibility is that they ultimately are to strength to um, bear the burdens or bear the weaknesses here. Um, the word that's used here actually refers to carrying a heavy or burdensome load. It's a pretty serious word. It doesn't just mean light lifting. It's the idea of carrying something very heavy. So the picture that he actually is using here, the, the uh, metaphorical picture, if you will, is to go over and somebody is currently under the weight of something and the strong go over and lift it off of them and put it on their own shoulders. That's the expectation. Now, how does that translate into us as a body of Christ? There are times where within the body of Christ, people struggle. They're incapable, if you will, according to Paul here. 
They're just not quite powerful enough, if you will, to carry the burden that's been placed upon them. Now, sometimes those burdens um, are just things that happen. I think about the Apostle Paul and what he struggled with. You know, Paul certainly didn't deserve the persecution that he faced. You know, you go, was it 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians where he lists all the things he'd struggled with, the shipwrecks and the number of times he'd been beaten just within a fraction of his life, you know. Um, you can't say those were Paul's doing. They were just placed upon him. But there are other times where our own stupid behavior gets us into trouble and we struggle, you know. Um, part of our job as a parent is when it comes to our kids, if, if we weren't there, and kids, listen up here, if we weren't there, sometimes you guys would do really stupid things that would mess up your life. And your parents are there to keep you from messing up your life. Because they don't want the heavy burden that that'll bring. You know? And so, sometimes, we struggle because just our own behavior. Sometimes we struggle because things just hit us with life. And so Paul says that when that happens, the strong... Those who are capable, is a literal translation, those who are capable are supposed to bear the burdens of the weak. It's our responsibility to walk over and to carry that. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, the word is used to translate it as helping the weak. Turn to Galatians chapter 6, if you would. Galatians chapter 6, give you another example of this. This is a great example. Paul says in Galatians 6, 1, Brethren, even if anyone, another brother or sister in Christ, is caught in a trespass or sin, you who are spiritual, that's another way of saying you who are strong, you who are mature, you who are capable, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. Notice what he follows it up with. Bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. What Paul is basically doing here is saying, when you see somebody caught in sin, when they're now carrying this burden of debt, this burden of sin, it's your responsibility now to go over and to help them, to try to restore them, and part of that might mean you've got to help them carry the burden. Which probably, in this context, means somebody's sinned and they're now paying the consequences. And maybe you can walk over and help them deal with those consequences, help them to now carry that. But the whole point there, he says, is to restore them, to help them overcome the sin, not just remove the consequence. Now, this is a particular instance where it refers to bearing one another's burdens in the context of sin. And that's not purely what Paul has in mind here in Romans. He's talking much more broadly that anytime somebody is struggling, anytime somebody is weak, or sometimes, or whenever they're incapable, whether it's a result of sin, or whether it's just life has really dealt them a bad hand, it's time to pick up the burden, to walk with them. I think we've had some opportunity here with, with um, Walker, you know, to sort of reach out and help carry that burden. I even think about... Um, the Malins here, when you guys had first shared with us the desire to have a kid and some of the, the burden that that kind of puts on, you know, um, wanting to have another child and, and um, struggling with that and um, praying for that. 
coming alongside and now being able to celebrate through this whole time as well, coming alongside them and now helping with some of what's coming next. You know, we've talked about um, helping with some of the finances and other things. That's what we're called to do, you know? Um, there's been instances in my own life here, um, just medical things that I've struggled with, that I've had to rely on the encouragement of others that have come alongside and said, what can we do? I remember when I was struggling so much with my back and I you know, was having trouble lifting, I thought possibly that I might have to go on disability. And how am I going to care for my family? And you know, Dave Rantifer came down and laid 60 bags of mulch for me. You know? And then he paid the price for it the next day. You know, um, That's what we're talking about here. And so Paul says that the strong are supposed to help the weak. Notice that he says it's the direct opposite of pleasing ourselves. Go back to Romans chapter 15. Verse 2, he says, Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. Right before that, the end of verse 1, he says, They're not to please ourselves. Isn't it interesting how we just love to take care of ourselves? You know? We are the most important people in this world, aren't we? It's always about us. One of our favorite phrases with the kids growing up is, it's not just about you. You know? He says we're supposed to please others, not ourselves. Um, It says we're supposed to look at what is good for the other person. It says that we're supposed to edify him or her. It says that we're supposed to be others-focused and self-sacrificing. So it's all about helping to carry burdens. That's what we're called to. It's all about helping to carry burdens. Now he gives us an example. He says we're supposed to follow Christ in this way. And what's interesting about it is when we do this, it ends up resulting in unity of the body. Now remember, the last two weeks Paul talked about how to have unity in the body by learning to live with each other in spite of the fact we might not always agree on how to live out our faith. And so unity was a big part of that. And Paul's now coming back around to that and saying, now, when you learn to care for one another's burdens, it'll naturally build unity within the body. And so let's go on and look at this. He says in verses 3 and following, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Start in verse 21 here. He says, For you have been called to this purpose, which is, in some respects, the purpose of suffering and, and whatnot, but for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, he bore our reproaches, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, meaning suffering for one another, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. What's the point that Peter's trying to make there? Well, that... Christ, according to Paul back in Romans chapter 15, didn't just please himself, but worked for our edification. Pleased us. Worked for us. And so he gives us the example of Christ. And that's what Peter's talking about here, that Christ did these things so that we might be free. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 
2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, he says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, what he's done for us, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So Christ made himself poor that we might become rich. Philippians chapter 2 makes that really clear and describes the way that Christ gave up the use of certain attributes to become human, if you will, that he might die and serve us. Again, what Paul is talking about here is the example of Christ not pleasing himself, but rather working to please us, to do what's right for us. One last one. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to, grie- began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you men couldn't keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time, and he prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he he left them again, and he went away, and he prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples, and he said, Are you still sleeping? And resting, behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who prays or betrays me is at hand. The reason I wanted to read that passage is because sometimes we just sort of overlook the fact of what Christ actually went through to not please himself, but to please us. This is the God of the universe in a garden praying. Another text says that he was sweating bloods because of blood because of the distress. Another text says that an angel had to come and strengthen him. For Christ to do what he did, to not please himself and to please us, um, took an immense amount of courage and strength. Remember, at this point, he had abandoned the use of certain attributes, which means he felt every pain, he felt every distress, the weariness, the tension... I suspect he even felt the fear of the thought of having to go and hang on a cross and be tortured the way that he would be tortured. That's the example that Paul expects us to follow when it comes to one another. It seems, however, oftentimes that, like the world, we're willing to give a little bit. It doesn't cost us too much. You know? Um, Yeah, we'll begrudgingly go help somebody if they need it. Because, you know, we've got other things to do. That's the way the world thinks, isn't it? And that doesn't mean the world's never gracious or that people don't give or do things, but it's just, we struggle sometimes with what's in our heart. And so Paul says here that we're supposed to look for the edification of others, help carry their burdens. Notice he says in verse 4, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. 
so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. All of this is tied into hope. Think about that. When somebody is, is in a position where they're just struggling, the thing that seems to be lacking so often is what? Hope. You know? And so just the fact that we go over and help them lift the burden brings hope. You know, I think about Gary Webb and his, and his wife Beth. You know, hearing those words, that you've got cancer. And what that must do, I found myself the other night, I was in bed just for some reason it came to mind and I just, I couldn't go to sleep. I kept thinking about Gary. I mean, as much as Beth is struggling, I kept thinking, what must Gary be going through? What must he be struggling with right now? You know? Um, hope. So Paul here says that much of the stuff written before with Christ in the garden and all those other things um, were written so that we might ultimately have hope. He goes on, he says in verses 5 and 6, Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant to you to be of the same mind towards one another. What's his point there? The same mind according to Christ, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some translations um, kind of miss the, the source in this. They actually focus on unity or harmony with this particular passage, but Paul doesn't pray for unity here. Unity is the result of what he's praying for. What does he actually pray for in this passage? He prays that they might all have the same mind as Christ. And what mind did Christ have? We just finished talking about that. Didn't please himself. Worked to please others. So Paul prays for that, not for unity. Isn't it interesting? Paul prays for the cause that leads to unity. Doesn't pray for the byproduct. And he says, if you all have the same mind as Christ, if you all think like Jesus Christ, then you'll each carry the burden of the other, and what will happen? He says here, you'd all glorify God with one voice. That's unity. That's unity. So we're to have the same mind. We're supposed to have the mind of Christ. So he goes on in the verses 7 through 12 and he says this, Therefore we should accept one another just as Christ accepted us. Reads this way, Therefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Remember how he started this passage. The stronger, those who are able, are supposed to accept those who are not. They're supposed to carry their burdens. He gives us a couple of reasons here why this glorifies God when we do this. The first one he says in verse 7, Therefore, that points back to the fact that in doing so we glorify God together. It brings unity. That's one reason why God is glorified. When we think like Christ, it brings unity in the body of Christ. But he also encourages us to accept one another because Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. What Christ did was to glorify his Heavenly Father. That's why when he's in the garden, he says, Hey, if this cup can get taken away from me, I'm cool with that. But if it can't, then it's your will, not mine. Because what he was interested in is what was accomplished on our behalf, but also because he came ultimately to glorify the Father. Which means that that really ought to be our goal as well, should it not? We glorify the body, the, the, the Father by caring for one another's burdens, by helping each other when we're weak. Notice that it extends to all believers. I love the way that Paul sort of ends this, this passage, if you will, He's got this long, um, let me go back to, to Romans chapter 15 here. He spends uh, quite a few verses here um, talking about the hope that God has offered. Look at verse, um, oh, let's go back to um, 
verse 7. Therefore, he says, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. So he kind of does some interesting things here. He basically is talking about what Christ just did for us. The fact that he um, edified not himself, but he edified us. Again, going back to the crucifixion and what Christ did to accomplish salvation for us. And he reminds them, remember, he's talking primarily to Gentiles here. There's a mix of Jews and Gentiles in the church, but his primary audience is Gentiles. And so he reminds them that Christ Jesus became a servant to the circumcision, the Jews, but he also, he says in the very next verse, and for the Gentiles, you Romans, to glorify God for his mercy. Then he goes on, he talks about hope. Look what he does. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with the people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises will rule over the Gentiles. All of this is about the Gentiles. He basically says, Look, God had a plan for you Gentiles, just like he did the Jews, and he focuses on the Gentiles, because that's his primary audience here. And somehow... This all ties back into what Paul is talking about with Christ not edifying himself. And it's interesting because, again, we find that hope is mentioned multiple times in this passage, including the very last word of verse 12, that in him the Gentiles will hope. But then he goes on in verse 13, and he sort of concludes now and summarizes all this, and once again he uses the word hope. And so what's significant about this, I think, is that Paul is trying to encourage them. He's saying, look, there'll be differences of opinion. You'll have different ways of serving the Lord. But you can't allow those to distract, to build disunity. You've got to learn to get along and accept those things. And part of doing that is having the mind of Christ. Learning to do exactly what Christ did, which is to take his own needs, his own things, and put those aside, to not please himself, but instead do what he did. In his case, going to the cross, allowing himself to be persecuted, put to death because it glorified God and it brought us hope. And he simply now comes back and he reminds the Gentiles that you have hope because of what Christ did. And that should become a motivator then for us to serve one another just like Christ did. And when we do that, it builds not just unity within the body, but it gives hope. You know? If you ever find yourself in a position where, man, you were just, you were really struggling and somebody came alongside to encourage you, would you say that hope maybe has been a part of that where, yeah, you know, I've got hope now. That's the way it's designed. When somebody decides to give up or to sacrifice some of their own comfort, their time, their energy, their finances, to help care for somebody else, when they have the mind of Christ and reflect the mind of Christ, he did when it came to saving the Gentiles and saving the Jews, it builds hope and unity within the body of Christ as well. It's that simple. So we're encouraged to do that. Let's look at how Paul concludes all this. Verse 13, he says this, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. When you go home today, just go back and read the passage and count up the number of times hope appears in there. 
Paul concludes the passage here, as well as the entire application section of the book. Like I said, this, this pretty much finishes what I'm going to call the practical part of the book. There's other things he'll talk about here in the rest of chapter 15 and, and um, chapter 16. But this is sort of where he finishes his discussion of what it means to be um, transformed and not conformed to the world. But he says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the Holy Spirit. The God of hope sort of harkens back, I think, to the first 11 chapters of this book. Because he talks about the gospel in the first eight chapters, or first yeah, eight chapters, where he spells out the hope that we now have in God and have in Christ because of God's redemptive plan. So he says here, by referring to the God of hope, he's kind of reflecting us back to the hope of the gospel and what God has done for us. It's Paul's prayer that this God of hope will actually fill us believers with all joy and peace and ultimately the result of believing in him. That's the purpose of the gospel, that's the plan of the gospel, and that's what Paul actually does. I love the fact that he uses some some sort of over-the-top language. He says that you might abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The word implies something that exists in abundance, having more than what's needed, and possibly even having more than what's expected. So Paul's sort of saying, you know, um, I really want you to have so much hope you can barely contain it. So much hope that it's overflowing. It's interesting that Paul ends in this note considering that often one of the things that robs us of joy and peace is the tension or disunity that we have with other believers or the trials that we face when we face them alone with nobody to come alongside us. It kind of robs us of that hope, doesn't it? I'm going to read just a couple of other passages that I think would be good for us to end on. Turn to Psalm chapter 133, verse 1. Psalm chapter 133, verse 1. I'm just going to read verses, uh, probably the first three verses here. This is David writing. He says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. He's talking about um, the body, if you will. In David's case, it would have been the Jewish body, Jewish believers. He says, Man, how, how good and how pleasant it is when we all dwell together in unity. For it's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes, He says, it's like dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. David thought about unity. There were times in Israel's past where Israel was not unified. Great divisions. In fact, as I've been studying through Samuel, one of the things I was reminded of is, you know the way the book of Judges ends? Because it picks up where Judges ends. The last episode that we see in the book of Judges is where... Some of the tribes come together and they attack the tribe of Benjamin and almost practically wipe it out. And they realize they've almost wiped out a whole entire tribe of Benjamin. So then they go and they find another group of people and they kill all of them and take their, their um, daughters and provide them as wives for the men of Benjamin. It's this horrific, nasty thing that they do. That's the way the book ends, you know. 
So Israel wasn't always at peace, but there were times um, where they were, and David kind of reflects upon that. He says, man, it's, it's pretty awesome when God's people dwell in unity. And he describes some ways that that's, in, in David's language, you know, the oil on the head, that was important to them. And I'm not sure about the oil dripping down on Aaron's beard, because that would be a little bit irritating to me. But for David, it was a good thing. <laughs> I always put talcum powder in mine, because it made it stop itching, you know. Turn to Philippians chapter 2 with me. Paul's encouragement to us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through two, or one and 2. He says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... What are you, what's he talking about there? Talking about unity, love within the body, us getting along. Again, look at those words. He's any encouragement, he says, any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion to one another. He says in verse 2, make my joy complete by being, oh, and here it is again, of the same mind. Of the same mind. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, Intent on one purpose. The mind he's talking about there is the mind of Christ. He's not just saying, same mind meaning you all agree. You all have the same mind as Christ. So what is what do we do with all this? You know, I just find it interesting that when Paul is referring to us living a transformed life, he ties it directly to the importance of one another in the body of Christ. Because almost everything Paul has discussed in these chapters now are all about interpersonal relationships. Did you see that? And about how we interact with one another. Which means that we cannot live a transformed life without being plugged into the body of Christ. We can't do it on our own. And what's really kind of remarkable about that, it's like, it's like a family. You ever notice how um, a husband and a wife, uh, Dave, I, I don't want to point you out, but I'm going to, because you made a comment one time about how sometimes us husbands, you know, we can be kind and gracious to everybody else, but our own family sometimes, like our wives, you know, or our children. You know, it's just amazing how that works. How we, we kind of we do that, you know? Um, those family relationships are some of the closest relationships we have, but aren't they almost the most difficult sometimes? You know, siblings fighting, husbands and wives not being gracious. I'll be real frank, I'm nicer to people at work sometimes than I am my own wife. I say it to my shame. That's because, it just, that's just the nature of that. It, just, it shouldn't be that way, but that's the way that it works, right? And so as Paul's talking about living out this transformed life, living in a way that doesn't conform to the world, but instead lives in a way that we are transformed, we become like Christ, the body becomes extremely important in that. But that body can be the most difficult thing because as Christians we disagree. We don't always have the same convictions. You know, There are some that are mature and some that are a little bit weak and sometimes it irritates us You know, because sometimes the mature look down... What's that? Did you just point at me for weak? Well, I was going to have a discussion on this last or next week about you, but you know... <laughs> but it, it's interesting because um, as, you look at the, as you look at the body... You know, 
we do we have differences of opinions you know um, when we when we say things to each other when we speak our minds and it kind of wounds each other then we want to lash out and it's because those closest relationships hurt you know the phrase you know the wounds of a friend they're, they're pretty nasty you know we don't expect anything of these strangers and absolutely or vice versa yeah that is so true so there's no very little disappointment so the, the the body is supposed to be the place that, you know, it's just like, oh, loving, and we just all get along, but yet it can cause some of the most tension. But yet Paul calls us back in and instructs us and tells us how to make it all work within the body of Christ by th- things like, you know, again, blessing and not cursing, by loving without hypocrisy, by helping to carry one another's burdens, by learning to get along in those differences. Instead of, you know, the, the looking down upon each other because we don't share the same convictions or judging others because they do things we wouldn't normally do. You know, all those things, and yet Paul calls us all back and he says, look, you have to understand how important it is that you be plugged into this body and that, that you get along in this way because that's how you live out the transformed life. That's why the body of Christ is so important. You know, God didn't put us out here on an island, did he? We need one another. And as silly as that sounds, or as cliche as that sounds, we need each other, you know, um, that is true. Because it's tied directly to us living a transformed life. Pretty cool, huh? That's a challenge for us. Um, My wife pointed out last week that I continue, and I still do, referring to this body as new hope. Because you get that in your head, you know, and it gets stuck. And so last week, a couple of times, I said, I love New Hope. Well, that was you guys, okay? So uh, it gets stuck in my head. But one of the things I love about Renew um, is that I see a lot of this taking place. We're a small group of folks here. We're not some big dynamic church, you know. But, boy, we sure love each other, don't we? I love watching how you guys respond to one another and the way that you care for one another. And uh, even something like, I think about, you know, um, I think about Walker and his family and the fact that um, even though we don't see them on a regular basis because of obviously the struggles and what they're going through, they, you guys still look at them as part of the body and you love them and you care for them and you pray for them and all that because that's what this body does. And so I, I just encourage, I'm so encouraged by, by, by you guys and, and uh, what happens here and ultimately pray that we might continue to reflect the mind of Christ as we live out transformed lives. So I'll go ahead and I'll finish on that. We'll spend some time singing. And um, again, this is kind of the end of the practical stuff, but there's more stuff that Paul's going to do for us in the next few weeks as we work. I think there's, I think it's four weeks left um, total in the book here before we get into 1 Samuel, which <sighs> gives me time to <laughs> work through it, which is a little bit overwhelming. So, um, But I'm looking forward to that. It should be a, a good study for us. So.